Welcome to the Making Sense of Life podcast. My name is Garth Oller, and I'm your host as we continue our journey through the pages of Scripture and track the story that we find unfolding there. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at the relationship that Yahweh has been pursuing with Israel, the one that he promised to Abraham over 700 years early. We're going to be looking at that, and we're going to see it formalized in the covenant with Israel that God makes there at Mount Sinai. Now, this covenant is also known uh, as the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Testament Law. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Um, and as always, we want to make sure that we think about and understand where we are in the story, and we're doing that by tracking what I'm identifying as the major characters. And those are, are characters through whom God begins a major initiative of some kind, and in most of the cases, there is a covenant that he makes with them through which the story is impacted. And so, of course, the first of those is Adam and Eve, uh, they were the first human beings who God created and commissioned uh, to rule as his representatives. But to, rather than filling that role, uh, they were led to pursue their own ideas of good and evil, independent of God. Rather than representing God, they decided to be like God. And with that, there is an implicit rejection of God's rule and of their role as his representatives. And of course, this brings what we know of as the curse which impacts man in his relationship with the ground. He's taken out of the ground. He draws his sustenance from the ground. He is to tend and care for, to rule over. That's a part of what he's to rule over. Um, and uh, so that is no longer going to work in cooperation with him. Uh, on, on the other side, that's the bad news. The good news is, is that uh, through the woman, there is this promised seed who is going to come and crush the serpent and rule in a way that Adam failed to when he abandoned that first role. Uh, and out of that promise comes two lines, uh, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The seed of the serpent will be those who, like the serpent, choose to pursue life independent of God, determining good and evil for themselves. This would be like Cain would be the first one of those. Um, and then the seed of the woman would be those who choose to align with God, and look forward to the promised seed. And so this is really, particularly in the early pages of Genesis, what we're tracking. And so as we track that line, it goes through Seth, and ultimately it comes to Noah, the next major character. And uh, Noah, uh, his name, uh, he was named to, to in, in association with an idea of rest uh, in hopes that he would be the one who would give rest from the curse. Um, and so he's the embodiment of the hope of the one who will come and bring release from the curse. In his day, he's the only righteous man, uh, the only one aligned with God. Everyone else is pursuing what they saw as good, which, again, is an implicit rejection of God and of his rule. And so this brings God's judgment in the form of the flood, which takes the breath of life from everyone on the earth. Uh, except Noah and his seed, his sons, and of course their wives with whom they're one flesh. And they are carried through the death in the ark that uh, kills all the rest of mankind. And so they are preserved uh, because of righteous, uh, the, Noah's righteousness and his alignment with God. When Noah comes off of the ark, uh, he offers a sacrifice that is soothing to God. Um, and uh, so as a result, God uh, makes the commitment that he will never again curse the ground on account of man. And it goes on, and this is in Genesis eight twenty one, because there's the recognition that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And so 
Um, man is 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 going to be evil, and uh, so it, really, this is an expression of God's intention to deal in grace with mankind. And out of this comes the covenant of the rainbow, the commitment not to destroy the earth and, and all of creation again. And associated with that covenant is a recommission. So Noah and his sons. Uh, are given a commission similar to what Adam and Eve were given at the beginning, to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Uh, They're given dominion over the animals. And then two new things are added, the death penalty for those who would shed man's blood and and the prohibition of eating blood because the life is in the blood, and that's sacred and holy to God. Now, although in Noah and his sons we have a fresh start, it's not long again before man has... uh, continued back to his old ways, uh, which is just exactly what God knew he would do. Uh, The intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Uh, And so he is united in pursuing life independently of God. And so again, there's this rejection uh, by mankind uh, of uh, God's rule and of mankind's role as his representatives. And so as a result, God sends another judgment. This one's not destroying mankind, but he confuses their language and so dividing them up. He creates nations, and later in the story, we're going to see that he uh, gives these nations over to be ruled over by demons uh, when he separates them at, at Babel. Uh, so at, at this point, there's really no continuation that we have of the, the seed of the woman, and so God begins a new initiative, and this is our next major character, and, and that's Abraham. And so with Abraham, there is this initiative of blessing that God brings, and of course, blessing is antithetical to the curse. And so it's against the backdrop of the curse that we, we, we get hope here in the commitment to bless Abraham. And so God offers Abraham a covenant with three major elements. One is uh, he's going to make him a nation, which implies that his descendants, his seed, uh, will be numerous enough that they will become a nation. And out of this nation, as, the, as that part gets expanded, kings are going to come. There's going to be rulers that are going to come out of that. And this nation is going to have unique relationship with God. This is one of the things we're going to be looking at in, in the story today. We're, we're, we're pursuing. It's a major emphasis in where we are in the story as we get into it. Uh, and, of course, to be a nation, they're going to have to have a land. And so he promises them the land of Canaan. Uh, that's not explicit at first. He says, go to the land that I'll show you. But then when he gets there, he identifies that it's the land of Canaan. Um, and then the third piece of the covenant with Abraham is this notion that through Abraham, all the world will be blessed. Those who bless him, Yahweh will bless. Those who treat him lightly, uh, Yahweh will curse. And so this is a, a particular status that Abraham and his seed, his descendants have, um, as the promise holder. And so however uh, the rest of cre- uh, mankind responds to them will be determined how to God will determine how God treats them. Um, <clears throat> and so Abraham was blessed in every way. Uh, but in terms of descendants, he only had one seed, Isaac. And so all of Abraham's possessions, including the promise of blessing, uh, the land, the, the seed, the descendants all passed to Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And so the promises to Abraham and Isaac then passed to Jacob, the younger of the two. Uh, Jacob has 12 sons through his wives uh, and their handmaids, their, who become their, their, uh, Jacob's concubines. Uh, so he has 12 sons, and those 12 sons go down to Egypt, uh, where Yahweh had told Abraham that they're going to spend 400 years and be, a sl- be enslaved before coming out 
with many possessions. And so as we leave them there, then we fast forward as we move into Exodus and uh, meet the next major character, which is Moses. And uh, so far, this is we're in the book of Exodus now, and we've seen uh, this is the third episode dealing with Exodus. In the first episode, we saw God's preparation of Moses as the deliverer who would lead Israel out of Egypt where they've been enslaved. The, 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 the deliverance didn't look like Moses thought it would at first, but uh, God is doing things his way in a way that glorifies him. And then the last episode, we saw Yahweh's glory manifested as now having prepared Moses, he acts through him to bring about Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And so he does this through a series of 10 plagues that culminates in the death angel uh, killing all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, but sparing all the sons of Israel and the firstborn among them, both man and beast. Uh, but he, he does this not simply to free Israel from slavery, but to bring them to himself so that they can live in relationship with him and through that relationship be the means by which he brings blessing to all the nations. Now we're putting the story together to recognize those things. And so we're going to be looking at that relationship <clears throat> and the establishment of that relationship in the covenant uh, today. So today we pick up the story uh, as Israel is at the beginning of their journey out of Egypt. And this journey is, is going to lead them from Egypt ultimately to Mount Sinai, and that's going to be the first uh, of two things that we're going to look at today, is that trip from Egypt to Sinai and what's going on there. Uh, the first thing we're told about that is that uh, the, uh, it relates to the route choice. God didn't lead them through the land of the Philistines. That would have been the most direct route probably, the simplest route in terms of navigation geographically. Uh, would be up to go up to the coast and go up the coast, but that would take them through the land of the Philistines. And God didn't do that because he knew they didn't yet have the heart for war. Um, so he, he led them by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. He knew that uh, that kind of thing would discourage them. And in fact, that's one of the things we'll see is, as it moves through is uh, they're, uh, they're not really committed to this process. And so they're uh, longing repeatedly for the days uh, of, of going back to... Uh, to Egypt. We'll see that show up here uh, very quickly. Um, and so Yahweh was not just giving them instructions, though. He was going before them in a pillar of cloud and fire, uh, cloud in the daytime, fire at night. Uh, and so this enabled them to travel both at day and at night. Um, and this pillar stayed with them all the time that they were traveling in the wilderness. Now, another thing about God's leading is that he didn't lead them in a direct route, but he led them in a way that made it look like they were wandering. And he did this to give the appearance to Pharaoh that uh, they didn't really know where they were going and uh, to, to lure him into chasing them. And uh, so when Pharaoh sees this, uh, he has a change of heart. He uh, harnesses up all of his chariots, including uh, 600 elite chariots, uh, and they come after um, uh, the nation of Israel. Um, and they, they come upon Israel as Israel is uh, camped up against the Red Sea uh, without uh, much of a way of escape. And so this is one of those places where we see the, the people's heart, uh, or lack of heart, and their complaint. Um, and so they say, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we can serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. 
And of course, God's not going to let him die in the wilderness. And so he instructs Moses. Moses stretches out the staff over the sea. And God parts the sea, creating dry land and allows Israel to march through on dry land across to the other side. Uh, Israel, uh, I'm sorry, Egypt is uh, drawn in to follow them. And so Pharaoh and the Egyptians decide to follow them. And then when they get in the sea, God creates confusion among the chariots. They start swerving, and then he releases the water and drowns all of Pharaoh's army uh, behind them. And so Israel gets to see firsthand. And in fact, there's a big song uh, that is recorded to commemorate this and commemorate, commemorate God's deliverance, how he destroyed the Egyptian chariots and, and army in a mighty way. Now, the next episode that's recorded is three days into the wilderness, and they come to the waters of Mara. Water, uh, waters of Mara, uh, Mara means bitter. And so it's the bitter waters, and uh, so they get there, and uh, they find that these waters that the, the, they're they're in the desert, and they need water, uh, but the water that they find there is bitter, and so the people grumble. Moses cries out to Yahweh, and Mo, uh, Yahweh shows Moses a tree to make the water sweet. So in Exodus fifteen twenty five, uh, we find out what God's up to here. Uh, he, he had given this incident to Israel as a test to see whether they would trust him. He's brought them out into the wilderness. Do they believe that he's good? Are they willing to trust him uh, or not? And, of course, they grumble and complain. And so then he acts um, uh, to, to show them that he's going to take care of them. Um, and, and then he says to them, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of Yahweh your God and do what's right in his sight. Now, remember, that goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Uh, actually, even Genesis 1, it's God saw that it was good. So if you do what's right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, if you'll obey him, I will put none of the diseases on you, which I put on the Egyptians. What you saw me do to the Egyptians, I won't. Now, the implication is, and what's not said, is if you don't, then all of those diseases um, I will bring on you. Uh, because, And then the, the last piece of this, he says, for... I, the Lord, am your healer. And that's what God wants to be. He wants to be the one who heals them, but they're going to have to trust him uh, in that process. And this is the first incident, the waters of Mara, um, where he's going to be working to teach them that lesson. And uh, so they journey on from there, and they come into the wilderness of Sin, uh, or Sin, however you want to pronounce it. There is a Hebrew letter, Sin, uh, uh, which is why I'm pronouncing it that way. And so um, there again, the congregation is, again, they're in the wilderness, uh, and they're grumbling against Moses and Aaron. They're complaining because uh, they, they said, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And again, we see God knew that their heart was not strong, that they wouldn't stand for war. They're, they're complaining about being, being hungry. Um, and uh, so God is going to use uh, manna. One of the things that's going to happen here, there's, there are um, uh, four incidents here in the wilderness of sin as they are seen, uh, as they are headed to Mount Sinai, uh, that are going to get some attention. Uh, and so this first one is uh, their hunger, um, and God is going to use the manna, the, the experience of the manna, to test whether they would walk in his instructions or not. Now, the manna means what is it, and they don't recognize what this is. God's doing something that's outside their experience, 
um, as, as a part of this test. And uh, so it was a, a, an unusual provision. It was something that they didn't know that he is using to provide food for them. And so uh, on Sunday through Thursday, they were together enough for each person for that day. Uh, and then on Friday, they were together enough for two days, Friday and Saturday, because there wouldn't be any on Saturday, the Sabbath. That would be a day of rest. And uh, so they were supposed to follow his instructions. And, of course, Israel didn't do very well at that. Some people tried keeping some of it for the next day. They got extra and tried keeping it to make it last in, uh, uh, during, during the next day. And it bred worms and became foul. Uh, others didn't gather a double portion on Friday. They came out on the Sabbath expecting to get some, uh, and there was none. And so in response to this, uh, Yahweh says, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? They uh, wanted to do what was good in their own eyes. Uh, and so they're going to experience this for the 40 years that they're in the wilderness and until they cross uh, into the land. And so this is the first. Here again is a test, but it's also what God is using to teach them uh, to trust Him, to depend on Him, and to follow His instructions completely and explicitly. Um, and then as they draw close to uh, Mount Sinai, there's another incident, uh, Masa and Meribah. Uh, and again, they find no water to drink. And so again, they're quarreling with Moses. And so Moses responds to them, why do you quarrel with me and why do you test Yahweh? Uh, but the people thirsted there for water and they grumbled against Moses and said, why have you now brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Every time you turn around, the, the, at, at least in the story here, uh, and this is all happening fairly quickly. Uh, it's going to be three months, but, the, but they're three months into the journey by the time they get to uh, Mount Sinai or within the third month. Um, and so it's not, it's not a long time, and they're complaining again that God's brought them out here to die. Um, and so Yahweh had Moses, in this case, strike the rock with his staff to produce water for Israel. Now, remember, we, we, we said that there are 600,000 men plus women plus children plus uh, older. Uh, the, the men were 20 to 50, the, the ones who were able to go to war. Um, and so they're producing enough. Moses is producing enough water out of this rock to feed uh, easily a couple million people. And uh, so it's a pretty significant uh, uh, miracle here. Uh, and the place is called Masa and Meribah. Masa means test. Meribah means quarrel. And so he named the place Masa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? In spite of all that they've seen, they're still questioning whether God's here and whether he's going to deliver them. Um, and then the third incident that they that we encounter while they're in the wilderness of Sin is uh, the Amalekite War. Now, if we think back in the story, Amalek was one of Esau's grandsons. So these are descendants of Abraham, uh, but they are not part of the promised seed. They're not part of the, the seed of the woman. And so they attack Israel. Um, and so Israel is not yet organized for war, and so Moses puts Joshua in charge of leading the defenders in battle, so he organizes them and leads them, and Moses goes up on a hill to watch, and so this is the story where um, he is looking over it, and as long as Moses held his hands up with the, the staff, uh, again, that God had worked through, Israel prevailed, but when he dropped his hands, uh, the Amalekites were winning. 
Um, and, and so he, uh, his hands get heavy and he gets tired. And so they put a rock and set him on the rock and Aaron and her are with him. Uh, and, uh, uh they hold up his hands and Joshua is able to lead Israel in defeating the Amalekites. Now, this is the second time that, uh, Israel has seen God deliver them from their enemy. Uh, but the first time it was, uh, of course, at the, the Red Sea. And all they had to do was to march through. At this time, uh, they're required to fight. It's going to require action on their part. But it's also clear that reliance on God was essential to victory. They didn't do this in their own strength. It took Moses holding up the staff, holding up his hands uh, as an expression of God's uh, activity and protection uh, and, and enabling that allowed them to defeat the uh, Amalekites. Now, this uh, hostile encounter with some of the other descendants of Abraham, other than the promised line, uh, the Amalekites, uh, is followed by a friendly encounter uh, with uh, a descendant of Abraham, which was Jethro, Moses' uh, father-in-law. Now, remember, uh, he was a Midianite. Midianite was one of the sons born to uh, Abraham's later wife, Keturah. And so uh, we met him back in Exodus 2. Um, and he was introduced as a priest from Midian uh, and also a, a friend of God. And so somewhere between there and here, uh, Moses' wife uh, Zipporah and her two sons Gershom and Eleazar uh, have left Moses to go stay with uh, her dad while all this is going on. And now Jethro meets them in the wilderness, brings them back, and uh, Moses tells Jethro about all their experiences and how God has worked. And Jethro, by contrast to the Amalekites, uh, is responds favorably to God. And so you've got those who are hostile to God, uh, are hostile to Israel. Uh, God has cursed the defeat of the Amalekites. Uh, and now Jethro is going to, to bless the Lord. Uh, in fact, in, in Exodus 18, 10 through 12, so Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God. And so although Joseph, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Jethro, uh, was a, a priest of God and knew something of God. Here through Moses' testimony, his faith is strengthened. He knows God in a greater way. Uh, and uh, Jethro and Moses and uh, Aaron uh, uh, come together, and, uh, and all the elders of Israel, in fact, and, and have a meal of celebration, sacrifices to God there uh, together. Now, while Jethro is there, he's observing how things are operating uh, in this newly gathered group. And uh, so Moses is uh, having to settle all the disputes, and everybody's bringing their disputes to Moses, and there's an overload of the system. Uh, Jethro recognized that this wasn't sustainable, wasn't good for Moses, wasn't good for the people. Now, if you, if you think about where we are in the story, the people don't have a lot of instructions from God. They've got um, the, the Passover uh, they've got the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, but there's not a lot that we're told about. That's all still coming. Um, and uh, so uh, Jethro encourages uh, 
Moses to, to take the disputes of, the, uh, of, of Israel uh, before God and then teach them God's statutes, teach the people God's statutes, how they're to live and how they're to function so they're not de- as dependent on him settling every dispute. And then after that's done, select a system of judges uh, who can handle the lesser disputes and only address the most difficult ones himself. And so Moses does this, and this makes things run much uh, smoother. And so with that, Jethro leaves and returns to his land, and uh, that brings Israel uh, to Mount Sinai. And so in their travels through the wilderness, God has presented Israel with a series of of tests in, in which they are challenged to trust him and obey him, and they have consistently failed. They have repeatedly grumbled and argued and expected the worst. They have not uh, anticipated that he was going to deliver them, uh, but he has used each of those to demonstrate to them that he will take care of them. He's going to he protect them from those who are, are hostile to them. He does that with uh, Egyptians at the Red Sea and then with the Amalekites. Um, he promises that he will provide healing, that he will not put the, um, uh, the, the plagues on them, that the, the diseases on them that were uh, he, he put on Egypt. Um, he demonstrates that he will provide water for them. He will provide food for them. He will take care of them. And so he has repeatedly done that. And, and that's been an important part of uh, what's been going on as they've journeyed from Egypt uh, to Mount Sinai. But now that they are at Mount Sinai, we come to really what the whole emphasis of the book is about. This is, in my opinion, the heart of what's going on in Exodus. God has brought them here for a purpose. Remember, we've said that he just didn't just deliver them from Egypt, but he are from slavery, but he delivers them from slavery in order that he might, uh, that they might serve him and enter into a relationship. And so that's what begins to happen at this point in the journey. Now we're in Exodus 19 at this point. And so they get to Mount Sinai and Moses, God calls Moses uh, up on the mountain and Moses went up to God uh, and the Lord called to him saying, and so I'm going to read, this is a verse, chapter 19, verses three through six. Uh, God's words, this is it's critical because it's at the heart of what's going on here. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and, to the, to, and tell the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself, right? And so that's what's happened to this point is that God has delivered Egypt, uh, Israel from Egypt, brought them through the wilderness and brought them to himself, Now then, he continues, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession. And the Hebrew indicates they're a unique possession among all the peoples, right? You're not going to be like the other nations. You're going to be a unique possession for all the earth is mine, but you're going to be a unique possession out of that's the implication of what he's saying. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, or a nation that is set apart. And so what's happening here, there is going to be a series of unfolding, unpacking of this relationship. Uh, And uh, so I think of this as uh, kind of a proposal of the relationship in principle, right? So I've brought you here to myself. I want to enter into uh, a unique relationship with you. You are a unique possession among all the earth. 
the earth is mine. God has given the other nations over uh, to be ruled by demons, uh, but he can do that because it is his. It doesn't mean that he has given it up. He has just given it over to the rule of the demons. It's still his. And out of all the nations, Israel is this unique possession. And so if you, if Israel will obey his voice and keep his covenant, that they will be that unique nation and they will be to him a kingdom of priests. A priest would be mediators. And so remember, it's through Israel that he wants to bring blessing on all the earth. Um, and in that role, they're going to be a nation that's set apart, a holy nation. And so we've been seeing that. He set them apart out of Egypt. This is what the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was about. Uh, and so this is what he's offering them in, in, in just a couple of sentences here. Uh, and so these are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And so this, this message is um, mediated by Moses. Moses takes Yahweh's words to the people. And when he presents them, the people reply, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so May, Moses um, takes this message back to Yahweh. And, and so Yahweh says, okay, then we're going to go to step two. Uh, and he reveals the, the next step. Um, and so the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud. So here's what's going to happen next. I'm going to come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. Now, this next phase is going to require preparation. And so God tells the Lord, Yahweh tells Moses, go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow. In other words, set them apart and let them wash their garments. They need to prepare and cleanse themselves. And be ready for the third day, day after tomorrow. For on the third day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. He's going to come down for everybody to see him. You're supposed to set boundaries for all the people around. All around. Uh, warn them not to go up on the mountain, not to touch it, not to touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. So this is a very serious affair when one that they need to make careful preparations for. And so Moses goes down and consecrates the people. Uh, they wash their garments, and he tells them to be ready for the third day. And so when the third day comes, when it was morning, uh, there was thunder and lightning flashes and the thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound. This is, He had told them when they hear uh, the long blast of the rounds, ram's horn, um, they, were, they were to uh, come up to the mountain. And so they hear that loud trumpet sound, so all the people who were in the camp trembled. This is a terrifying experience. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They're going to meet God uh, in, a, in a direct encounter. I, I started to say face-to-face, but they don't meet him face-to-face. Uh, but what they see is the mountain. Um, in fact, the, the description of it, they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And so there is this terrifying experience in which the mountain is engulfed in, in cloud and smoke and thunder and lightning, and there's all these rumblings and trembling. Um, and so that's impressive enough, and Moses goes up into that. Uh, and so this is a part, remember God said that he wanted to, the people to fear Moses and, and respect Moses. And, and so that's a part of what he's doing here. Uh, and so Moses gets up there, and, and God tells him, Yahweh tells him, uh, go down, warn the people so that they don't break through to the Lord, 
uh, to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, or else the Lord's going to break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, eh, The people cannot come on Mount Sinai. You warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. The Lord said to him, Go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break forth on them. And so it's very important that this distinction between God and the people is maintained. And so Moses goes down, tells the people, um, and then God speaks, and all the people perceive the thunder. Uh, and lightning flashes. And what he's doing here is he's listing the Ten Commandments. And so uh, this is the expansion. Remember we said in that initial uh, in, in commitment in principle, obey my commands. And now what he's doing here is he's giving them uh, basically the outline of their obligations in the form of the Ten Commandments. Now, what the people perceived was the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, Tell you what, Moses, you speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. And so this is a terrifying experience. It accomplished what uh, God wanted in that it drew awe and fear uh, or or cultivated, caused uh, awe and fear to well up in the hearts of the people. Uh, But in their response, They said, tell you what, Moses, you get the message from God, we'll listen to that. And so there's a commitment to obey, but we don't want to go through this again. And so Moses tells the people, look, don't be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. And so the people stand at a distance while uh, Moses approached the cloud uh, where God was. And so we've um, we've gone through now two phases. There is this, in principle, I, I'm offering you a relationship. You obey me. I will make you a holy nation. The people said, we'll do that. And so then they went to phase two, where God appears to them in person. And, and now they've been given the Ten Commandments, and the people are in awe. Um, you, you go get the message from God, and, and whatever he says, we will do. And so there's the commitment to obey. And so Moses goes back up the mountain uh, to God. In fact, he goes back into the cloud. Uh, And while he's there, God gives him an extensive list of detail ordinances. It runs from verse 22 of uh, chapter 20, Exodus 20, 22, through 23, 19. So there's about three chapters of detailed ordinances that are now beginning to be spelled out. This is the obligations. This is what... Israel is supposed to do. And so it deals with um, all kinds of just the breadth of, of, of life uh, within the nation of Israel. And when you come to then uh, the latter part of this instruction that God is giving Moses, he moves from the obligations into the benefits of this covenant to Israel. And so uh, before he had said, um, you will be a nation of priests. Uh, you'll have a relationship with me. I'll make you a holy people. And, and now he's going to expand on that uh, in this uh, uh, this part of uh, the fleshing out of the promise, if you will, the covenant. And so he says, "Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you, before you, to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared." So he's going to have an angel. One of the benefits is is in their obedience. He's going to send an angel to go before them and to bring them into the place that he's prepared. 
Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression since my name is in him. But if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Right? And so this is the promise to Abraham. Those who curse you, treat you lightly, I will curse. Uh, This is explicit here. If you will obey me, you will experience that kind of relationship. I'll be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. Now here's again, there's a warning in the midst of this benefit. You shall not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars in pieces. But you shall serve the Lord your God. And now here's some more benefits. He will bless your bread and your water, and I will remove sickness from your midst. There shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. Uh, But later as we get into Deuteronomy, this is going to be explicitly stated both uh, among the people and also among the livestock. And so God is going to bless, bless their bread. In other words, he's going to provide bread for them. He's going to provide water for them. There's going to be all that they need. He's going to remove sickness from their midst. There will be fruitfulness in the womb. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come. And uh, I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets ahead of you so that they will drive out drive out the Hivite, uh, the Canaanite, and the Hittites before you. Now, I'm not going to drive that. He says, I will not drive them out before you in a single year, that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. And I'll fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the river Euphrates. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land in your hand and you will drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. They shall not live in your land because they will make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. And so the benefits laid out here is that God is going to, he's going to drive uh, all of the, the inhabitants out of the land. He's going to give the land to Israel. Now, a part of the driving them out is because if they remain, they're going to be in a negative influence and they're going to... Uh, draw Israel's heart away to worship them, and then that's going to bring God's curse uh, on Israel. Uh, But as they are obedient, as Israel is obedient, and as they go in and take possession of the land, God is going to remove uh, the sickness from them. He's going to give them fruitful wombs. He's going to provide for them bread. He's going to provide for them water. He's going to provide for their needs. And they're going to experience his blessing, right, in the land, And so that's the benefits of this covenant to Israel. And so Moses gets this message along with these blessings, and he comes back and he gives a verbal recounting of all that Yahweh has instructed him. And the people respond to that, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Uh, And that's in Exodus 24, 3. Now, having given uh, the verbal recounting, then Moses writes all these ordinances down. And on the next day, there is what I'm going to call a ratification ceremony. Moses builds an altar and burnt offerings 
uh, are made, young bulls are sacrificed for peace offerings. And half the blood is sprinkled on the altar. So the blood of the sacrifices is sprinkled on the altar, half of it. The other half is put in basins. And so now on this next day, Moses again reads the ordinances he has written, right? So remember, he made the initial offer back in 19. Um, I brought you to myself. Um, and uh, if you'll obey me, I'll make you a holy people. You'll be a unique possession to me. The people said, we'll do that. They heard the Ten Commandments. And they said, Moses, you get the words from God. We'll listen to them. And so there's been an affirmation there. Then he goes up and gets the detailed instructions that we just heard about. And the people hear those and respond to them. And now the fourth time, the fourth uh, in, the, in this fourth round, Moses reads these same ordinances to them the next day, uh, the Book of the Covenant. And the people responded, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And so Moses takes from the, um, uh, the blood that's in the basins and he uh, sprinkles it um, uh, on the people, right? And so they are there as represented being under the blood of these sacrifices. Uh, and it was the blood of the covenant. And so it's in this ceremony that this covenant is ratified. God has made the offer. They've written them down, the, 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 the um, ordinances down, and the people have agreed to keep them. And so this ceremony is a symbolization and a ratification of this covenant. And so Moses then takes Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, who are Aaron's sons, and 70 of the elders of Israel, uh, with him, and uh, they're able to come up. They're still from operating from a distance, but they see God, and they eat and drink. And so they see him in a way that uh, it doesn't look like the rest of Israel is able to. Uh, and notice that, that this is after they've been sprinkled with the blood uh, of the covenant. And so they are now given a glimpse of God, the, the elders, the representative of Israel, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. And so the covenant with this uh, appears to be uh, in place. It appears to be ratified, sealed. Um, and with that, then Yahweh is going to call Moses up on the mountain. And we're going to look at this in the next episode um, because I, I think th in that this trip up the mountain, there's a beginning to be an implementation uh, of the covenant. It's going to begin to be carried out and, and engaged, implemented. So we'll look at this in the next episode uh, because there's a, a good bit related to that uh, that we need to consider. Uh, but what we have here, what we've looked at today, is that God has brought uh, Israel out of the land of Egypt through the wilderness where he's been teaching them uh, to depend upon him in faith, to trust him, to obey him. Um, and he brings them here to Mount Sinai, and he unfolds this uh, the, the covenant to them uh, in a series of encounters with increasing detail uh, and the people repeatedly um, affirm their commitment to obey. Uh, so that brings us to the end of the story piece of what we want to look at today and, and brings us to the making sense uh, of life aspect of, of our discussion. And there's really two things uh, that I want to uh, mention here is we reorient our thinking um, in light of what we're learning here. And the first is this, and that is that having delivered Israel from Egypt, Yahweh has brought them to himself. We've been talking about this, that he didn't deliver them from slavery just to be free, 
but he's delivered them to bring them to himself here to this place that he calls his mountain, Mount Sinai. And here he has presented them with the terms of the relationship that he's offering him, offering them, I'm sorry. Uh, and that relationship that was part of his promise to Abraham. So this has been a part of the story since uh, Genesis 17. Um, and uh, so we can break that up into two parts. Israel's responsibility, and, and that responsibility was to obey Yahweh, keeping all the ordinances, including the covenant. Uh, the responsibilities, as we've said, had been unpacked over the course of several days. First, they were summarized in a general principle of obedience, and res- Israel had responded to the offer with a commitment to obey all that Yahweh had said. Then Yahweh presented the Ten Commandments uh, to them personally, himself, when Moses brought the people to meet him. Their response to this encounter uh, was terror and a desire to never have to do it again. Uh, Instead, they wanted God to speak to Moses and have Moses to deliver the words to them. But in that statement, they did commit to listen to those words. And so there's a commitment a second time. Then thirdly, uh, Moses got a detailed expansion of the ordinances from Yahweh, which he recited orally. The people responded to that recitation that they would do all that Yahweh had said. And finally, he wrote the words down and read the ordinances to them as a part of the ratification ceremony that included the blood sacrifices. And again, the people uh, of Israel expressed their commitment to be obedient to all that Yahweh had said. And so God was careful to unfold this and unpack this in a way where Israel had every opportunity to understand what they were committing to. Um, And so it took place over uh, expansion and, and repetition. Now, that was Israel's responsibility. Yahweh's uh, commitment was uh, expressed, expressed both as a general principle uh, that Israel would be uh, his unique possession among all the nations and that they would be a nation of priests and a holy people. And as he got into the specifics, uh, that meant that they would take possession of the promised land, the land of Canaan. And Yahweh would be an enemy to their enemy, enemies and an adversary to their adversaries. He's going to bless them, and that blessing is going to include provision. It's going to remove, uh, uh, include the removal of sickness from their midst, and it's going to uh, include fruitfulness and blessing uh, as they are there in the land. And the effect of all of this is that the curse that has been on the ground since uh, Adam and Eve is effectively going to be uh, removed from their land if they will obey uh, him. That's going to become more apparent uh, there's just a hint of that now. That's going to become more apparent uh, as the story unfolds. I'm getting a little bit ahead of it there. Uh, but that fruitfulness is is definitely a part of it, and it's, and it's stated here uh, in, in a, a seminal form. Um, and so what we take away from this, I review all of that to say this. So this covenant is a conditional covenant. It was dependent upon the people of Israel's obedience couple things we want to notice in light of that. First is the benefits available through the covenant are not eternal. They are temporal. Israel's obedience gained them possession of the land promised and Yahweh's blessing as they live in it, right? It's, it's about their taking possession and being blessed in the land. As we saw in the last episode, these people had effectively expressed their faith in Christ through the participation in the Passover. 
they were justified by faith in Christ, which is what we tend to think that the story's about, and that's what we think everything is about. Are you going to heaven when you die? Well, they had accomplished that faith. They didn't have the details that we do to understand it the way we do, but in their participation, they were expressing faith in the Lamb, which represented Christ, and so they're justified. And the point of this was to bring them into a relationship with God where they could enjoy the relationship along with all of its benefits, right? And so this covenant lays out those benefits. They have been reconciled to God. Their, their sin has been covered. And, and, we're in, yeah, there, there's a longer theological statement there. But they have, they're under the blood uh, uh, of the Lamb, so that they can enjoy this relationship. And so God brings them out of slavery to enjoy this relationship along with all of its benefits. This covenant is laying out those benefits, the Mosaic covenant, along with the obedience that's required to experience those benefits. Now, here's the point that I'm trying to make. If you're like me, you've been conditioned to, to believe that the whole point of what God was doing is... Um, to grant us justification so that we can go to heaven when we die. And so as we look back on the story, we try to fit everything into that mold, right? But that's not what's happening here. God is bringing Israel into a relationship with him so that they can enjoy the benefits of that relationship. But that relationship requires obedience, right? And so uh, that's going to require a significant shift in our perspective about what God's doing. He's not just dealing with the guilt of our sin, but he is bringing us to a relationship so that we can enjoy the benefits of that relationship. All right, now the second thing that we want to recognize in relation to all that we've talked about is this, that this covenant promises possession of, of the promised land, right? And so Yahweh had promised this land of Canaan to Abraham. And so this covenant is the means by which the promise to Abraham is being fulfilled. God had promised you're going to, your seed will inherit the land, and now these descendants of Abraham are going to or have the opportunity, let me say it that way, to in, inherit the land. But this covenant is conditional, right? It's dependence on the obedience of this generation to the Israelites. Whether or not they inherit the land will depend on whether or not they keep the covenant. But Yahweh's promise to Abraham is not conditional, right? It's guaranteed to Abraham and his descendants. Yahweh is going to give the land of Canaan to Abraham's seed. But whether this generation of Israelites or any other for that matter depends on the willingness of that generation to trust Yahweh in obedience. Before the story's over, Abraham's seed will possess the land promised to him in faith. But it doesn't necessarily have to be this generation. And so you have the conditional covenant, which determines whether the particular generation inherits the land. But even if they don't, it doesn't invalidate the unconditional covenant 
that is made to Abraham. It will be fulfilled sooner or later before the story is over. And then that brings us to the third thing. Given this fact, and given that this covenant was presented to Israel as Yahweh's unique possession, there's no way that either the obligations and or the promises can be arbitrarily modified and or adopted by any other people group. These promises belong to Israel as God's unique possession. And so the specific point is this. As New Testament believers, we don't take the law and apply it to us. It was given to Israel as the means by which they would take possession of the land. We don't live under the law. We can't claim the promises, nor can we claim any of the promises that are made to Israel throughout the Old Testament. Some of those things may be true of us. I think of what comes to mind is I know the plans that I have for you, plans for good and not harm, blessing, depending on what the the translation is. Those things may be true. God may be committed to blessing us as his people, but those promises are unique to the nation of Israel. They are God's unique possession and they belong explicitly to them. And so we can't take those and by some um, something that seems right to us make a correspondence between uh, those uh, promises that were made to them and how we can apply them uh, to, to our lives. So this is another significant shift in our perspective regarding how we relate to God. Uh, and so in the next episode, we're going to look at how Yahweh will begin to implement this relationship. Now that it's ratified, he's going to begin to do things to make this a reality. And we'll look at that next time. So thanks again. I hope you're finding this beneficial. Continue uh, to pray that uh, this is helping you understand the story and how your life fits in. Uh, Appreciate you joining me. Let me share with you what I'm learning and what what God's showing me. And uh, so uh, we'll, we'll look for you next in the next episode. Uh, God bless.